welcome to Energy Central's Power Perspectives podcast, the show where we discuss the future of the energy and utility industry, dig deeper to get to the heart of the issues that matter most to the power sector, and hear from all of you who make it possible. I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe and Community Ambassador with Energy Central. Joining me from Orlando, Florida is Matt Chester, Energy Central's Community Manager and producer of this podcast. Today, we'll dive into a discussion on the critical role utilities serve in accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles. Matt, do you own an EV? I actually do. I've, I've had one for a little over a year now, and I definitely love it. That's great to hear. You know that EVs represent less than 2% of vehicles on the road today, yet a significant undercurrent of market and behavioral forces are hard at work to see that percentages grow. Indeed, utilities play a critical role in supporting the electrical infrastructure necessary to shore up the grid for an expansive charging network. In 2019, the combined annual sales of battery and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles crossed the 2 million mark for the first time. And while studies show that COVID and the consequent economic uncertainty will likely create a short-term hurdle in the growth of EVs, overall, industry insiders are still predicting long-term growth in the coming decade. This paints a positive picture, right? Well, this growth will pose significant challenges for the electric utilities who must plan for the infrastructure that the transition requires. An electric charging network was not what Edison and the early planners of the grid had in mind. As range anxiety and cost of ownership both decline, plus stylish types and models come to market, EV ownership will grow in years to come. Fleet ownership is on the rise with recent announcements from companies such as Amazon, UPS, and national brand distributors and grocers. Such a rapid change requires the power utilities to accelerate grid modernization in order to meet load demand. Our discussion today takes us to the state of Texas, which has experienced a 40% increase in EV purchases in the past five years, according to Austin Energy. What can we learn from a deregulated market such as Texas? And what can we learn from the state that goes big on everything? But before we bring on our next guest, we want to quickly recognize our sponsors who made this episode possible. To West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics including aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployment, and industry disruptors like DER and cybersecurity. To ESRI, an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. And to Guidehouse, formerly Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. Joining us in this podcast today is our guest, David Treichler, a man who has worn many hats. He's a strategist, a Six Sigma master black belt, novelist and screenwriter, and currently holds the position of Director of Strategy and Technology at one of Texas's largest utility companies, Encore Electric Delivery. From working as a defense contractor to leading teams in classified intelligence, high-tech battlefield sensors and training systems, to presently working in the utility sector, David brings vast and varied experience to the table. Leading the Encore team since 2013, he is presently responsible for development of corporate strategies technology evaluation, and deployment on the Encore grid. He addresses a host of electric utility system subjects, such as distributed generation, 
microgrids, energy storage, and transportation electrification. As part of Energy Central, David recently shared how Encore is planning to be ahead of the electric transportation wave hitting the utility industry, especially in Texas. And what are the challenges electric delivery companies face due to the highly deregulated market of Texas? I'm excited to learn more about Encore's plans straight from the horse's mouth. David Treichler, welcome to Energy Central's Power Perspectives podcast. Happy to be here, Jason. Let's start with the regulatory environment. For those unfamiliar with how investor-owned utilities operate in Texas, can you take a moment to explain this and how this impacts business decisions related to the transition to EVs? Sure. The Texas market has three legs to it. You have the generators, you have retail electric providers, both who are deregulated and compete fiercely for market share. Encore is the regulated part of the environment here. It's the wires company. We pick up the electrons at the generation source and we deliver it to a meter at the customer's premise. Encore neither generates nor sells electricity. We just deliver it. This impacts the EV market in that we can't own public chargers or anything behind a customer's meter. We also have less flexibility to assist with the financing of the charging infrastructure as compared to what we see in other, other states. But in most instances, that lack of incentives is offset by the low cost of electricity in Texas. With regard to vehicle electrification, you segment customer groups into personal transportation and fleets who might wish to electrify their vehicles. To serve these segments effectively, how much planning and preparation does Encore need to ensure widespread fleet electrification, both for owners of the fleets and for their utility partners? We look at it from the, the two different segments somewhat differently. We've been doing some studies in the residential area recently to try to get an idea of what are the impacts. Generally, what we see is that there's very little or no role for Encore when someone buys an electric vehicle and wants to put a charger into their home. However, if a whole bunch of people on a, on a street all decide to buy electric vehicles at the same time, we may have to change out a transformer or do some minor kinds of things in that neighborhood. The studies that we've done indicate to us that we don't see a significant investment by the utility for residential or personal transportation uh, needs until we get about a 25% penetration on a, a lateral or a feeder itself. So if we see on the, on the personal transportation side, not a lot of extra things that the utility has to do until we get to about that 25% uh, penetration. Fleets are a whole different story. And let me just tell you a quick story about that. For Encore, I used to travel a lot, and consequently, I'd be flying in out of the DFW airport uh, two or three times a month. On one of those trips about three years ago, as the airplane's approaching the runway, I'm looking out the window of the airplane, and I see all of these logistics centers and warehouses all around the airport. And I've been just making a presentation at another conference about what we were looking at doing for electric vehicles and trucks, and I realized that these buildings are all so close together that if, in fact, we had electrified the fleets at each of these buildings, we would have trouble trying to find land to even build substations to be able to service them. So that was the thing that caused us at Encore to have the epiphany, and there may be a problem. And consequently, we, we started on a path of, of internal conversations about what do we have to do to get prepared. Fantastic. So fleet electrification is trickier than personal transportation, and time is quite an essential factor here. So what do you think are the logistical challenges of ramping up fleet of electrification at such a rapid scale? Now, as I indicated, you know, for Dallas, we have this issue that many of our logistics centers and, and warehouses are all closely clustered around the airports 
and the crossroads of the interstate highways. So consequently, what we're, what we're seeing is that trying to be able to respond to the, the fleets are going to depend on how many electrify all at the same time. And one of the things that we've we started doing some research on is that a lot of the fleets are owned by companies like Penske and Riders and other fleet management companies, if you will. So consequently, those people are going to start recommending to their clients to all electrify all about the same time, which is when it costs one penny more to drive a diesel truck than it does an electric vehicle in terms of total cost of ownership. So what that made us start thinking about as we, as we talked to more of these fleet owners, that there's a, a high probability that people will all start trying to electrify small portions of their fleet all about the same time because of cost. So that made us start really focusing in that we have to be prepared and we have to be out in front and we have to develop some other approaches to how we invest our CapEx and build out our system so that we can be prepared to handle these multiple users who are all electrifying at the same time. Now, David, are, are you finding that for different types of fleets or the fleets versus personal transportation, are there different types of programs or incentives or just logistics that you have to, to plan out? Or does it not really matter on your end what those specific fleets look like? The main thing that uh, changes the equation for us is not so much incentives and things because in the state of Texas, because we are a regulated utility and we don't sell energy and we don't have the full income stream to be able to uh, make investments on behalf of the, the ratepayers in our service territory, the issue is that you know, we have to really focus in on how do we ensure that the customer has the capacity to charge a vehicle that they purchase the day the vehicle arrives on their site. That's basically the encore premise to fleets. So what that, what that does is it, it puts us in a position where we have to understand how the customer is going to use that fleet and the operations are going to drive how they charge. For example, some, some fleets are going to be delivering you know, delivery vans. Many of them, at least in the present uh, configuration of things, deliver only during certain hours of the day and the trucks come back in and are sitting at the, at the depot overnight. So they can, come, they can afford to have the, charge, the vehicle sitting there for four to six hours chargeable overnight so they can put in what we refer to as a level two charger, which is a 240 volt type charging system, much like the, the electricity that you use for an electric cooktop or a, a washer dryer system. So it's, it's that level of electricity. But if you don't have the time to charge the truck overnight for these long periods of time, if 24 hour operations, like some of our customers, many of our customers do, they use a DC fast charger, which is much higher voltage to be able to charge these things in a relatively short period of time, just like the the Tesla fast chargers, superchargers you have out in the community where the Tesla people will be able to drive their car in and, and charge it up in less than an hour and get back on the road again. Many of the, the fleets are looking at having to use the fast charge approach to be able to meet their operational requirements. So one of the things that we have to do more so than we, we generally had to in the past, in order to understand the load profile of our customers, we have to really understand how they're going to use the vehicles and when and how they're going to be able to charge. So that clearly changes how we, we build out the system. If they're charging on system peak, the amount of capacity we have to be able to bring in is significantly more than if they're able to do almost all their charging overnight. David, as mentioned in your article, Texas is at the nation's literal crossroads of air, road, and rail transport. So fleet electrification is highly important for the state. However, this poses particular challenges of its own. Could you talk a bit more about how do you address these concerns and what this period of EV transition means for a state like Texas compared with the rest of the country. The statistic that we got from the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, is that approximately 
12.9% of all freight moves through Texas. And much of that moves through Dallas-Fort Worth because you have two major north-south highways that merge here in Dallas. Uh, multiple east-west interstates both all come through the Dallas region going east-west. So consequently, we have a lot of the freight that moves through the United States comes through here. And interestingly enough, a lot of the freight is actually freight that moves from Mexico to Canada in relation to the automotive industry. So we have a tremendous amount of freight that moves through the area and then a tremendous amount of freight that stays here because we're the primary distribution point for much of this part of the United States, southern United States. So consequently, with that much freight moving through here and that much freight residing here, we also have two major airports, as, as you may know. Uh, we have the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. We also have the Love Field uh, area Airport in Dallas itself, which is more of an executive airport. But then we also have the Alliance Airport, which is owned by the Ross Perot companies and is actually a private airport that's used primarily for freight. Interesting enough about the Perot facilities out there, they have over 400 different companies that have all built logistics and other types of facilities in and around this Alliance Airport uh, corridor, we call it. And consequently, with all of those, it's, it's, I think it's somewhere around 12 or 13 million square feet of warehousing all in this area around this airport. We also have the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad that has built a multi-mode facility there so they can load tractor trailers onto their flat cars and move them in and out of this area. So we have right at that one point, a, a coalition of air, rail, and highways all coming into this one location with all of this warehousing also built out there. And that's just one of four major complexes that we have for logistics in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Our challenges here may be magnified in terms of what some people see. And again, Encore is a utility. We have about, we serve about 10 million people, about 3.7 million meters that we're servicing. We're a very large utility, and, but we are not unusual in the fact that everybody has freight that's delivered in the, into their area. One of the things that was a startling number I saw just uh, this morning, we have, I believe it's 79,000 uh, refrigerated and other trucks that are, are allocated just for delivery of food in and around our service territory. That's, a, that's an immense number. That's more than all of the other tractor trailers that are bringing freight through the area. So food is, is one of the things that we see is, is a significant driver of fleets in our service territory. And everybody has food moving in out of their areas. So there's going to be a large number of fleets around food companies that uh, everybody's going to have to figure out how to address. So you know, the, the nature and the character of the fleets, the way that the transportation networks work through our service territory, it, it just is a, a perfect storm that electrification of fleets become very meaningful in Texas. In fact, the uh, Rocky Mountain Institute and uh, the National North American Council for Freight Efficiency just recently put out a report saying that Texas is one of the four primary areas in the state where they think electrification will occur first. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen to every place else in the country. It's just we may see more of it, and the freight is the reason that's, that's driving it. Coming back to that earlier comment I made about when, when the cost of moving a truck across the road costs one penny less to go electric than diesel, everybody's going to start moving their fleets. And one of the things we're seeing is that it will happen over multiple years. Many of the fleets are changed out over five years, for example. Others are changed out over seven or 10. It just depends on how the trucks are used, how many miles they put on them every, every year. And then the, the maintenance component of that becomes very significant as those trucks get older. So you start seeing secondary fleets where someone that has 
bought the truck new or, or leased the truck new, will at the end of five years turn it over, but that truck will thus not leave our service territory. It will end up with somebody else's fleet. We'll then run it for another two to three years or maybe even longer. And a recent number we saw, statistic we saw was that the number of vehicles from Texas that end up in Africa after 10 years of use in Texas is astounding. So these vehicles don't go away. They don't go out of service. They just relocate. That is very interesting. Now let's turn to the role of government and the regulatory environment in Texas. Are you seeing the government transitioning its fleet? And what kinds of incentives and rebates are they offering to the business community? And, and the same with regulatory. What, what or more could you see in supporting Encore in this transition? The, the state's primary support for moving to alternative fuel vehicles, electric being one of them, uh, is run through the, the Texas Council for Environmental Quality. And the funding that's available through there is primarily to try to get the old, dirty diesel trucks off the road, get cleaner vehicles on as a, an effort to try to help improve the overall air quality in Texas. We do have some major areas that are non-attainment designation for the Air Quality Act uh, national, at the national level. So there are efforts through the state to try to address those particular issues. The dollars in, in Texas are not as large as they are for, for a lot of others. But there's a lot of effort going on right now around the uh, Volkswagen funds. As an example, the Everman Independent School District, just outside of Dallas, just re uh, received a grant for three school buses that they put into service this particular school year. And Encore has been working with them to get their electrical charging infrastructure into place. And we're working with them on some other things to look at vehicle to grid applications. Uh, one of the things that we have in our long-term looks on our research and development is how can we potentially use electric school buses in our service territory to plug into our grid when we have an outage and try to keep a portion of our feeder grid up by using these electric vehicles to be able to just move them into the area where the grid outage occurs. If we can put in some switchers, switches into the, the feeder lines, if, the out, if an outage occurs, we can hopefully keep up a portion of the feeder while we're doing repair where the actual damage has occurred. But again, reducing the total number of minutes that our customers are experiencing outages. So we're looking at how can we use the vehicles in a multiple ways to not only meet our customers' requirements, but to service the grid and, and help us and, and improve our overall service to our customers as part of that. Now, the, the Public Utility Commission in Texas uh, just concluded a proceeding, uh, was 49-125 was the proceeding number, uh, and they were looking at the various aspects of, of electric vehicle charging in the state. And they're just in the process now of getting ready to file their report to the legislature for the upcoming session. And Encore went through two rounds of answers to requests for information to the commission, making some recommendations. Um, the, the, probably the biggest issue in the state of Texas is just clarifying, is electric vehicle charging a retail electric sale of, of electricity? Because again, in a deregulated market in Texas, we have a category of people in, who compete in the retail sale of electricity. So we are recommending at Encore and a number of other entities we've seen are all recommending that electric vehicle charging not be considered a retail sale electricity so that anybody can own an electric charging station in the state and, and not have to be qualified as a retail electric provider. And it's, and it's just to ensure that the companies that, that wish to be able to provide electric charging don't have to have that, that particular designation and, and adhere to all the requirements of someone who's trying to sell electricity to your, your premise or sell electricity to company. So 
while Texas does not have a lot of the, the kinds of supports that you find in other states, the, the fact that electricity is so inexpensive in Texas and our, because of the way our competitive market is set up and the nature of, of our, our communities, we believe that uh, it's, it, Texas will be, again, one of the first four states that sees significant electrification of, of fleets. That's great. You know, David, it's safe to say that the oil and gas economy built Texas. The state has landscapes of oil fields and a historic pride around the oil industry that helped power U.S. industry. It's part of the state's heritage. How is a non-carbon, non-gas-powered vehicle and industry doing to the culture of Texas? It's interesting because one of the things we've seen right along is that the adoption of the personal electric vehicles, you know, primarily the Teslas and the Chevy Bolts and the Nissan Leafs and the others that have been in the market uh, since 2011 and, and on, mirrors the, the nationwide adoption rates. We're not as fast as California and, and a few other states, but our, our adoption has been the same as every place else in the country. And you can, you can attribute that to some extent to being the result of the, the early adopters who are tree huggers and, and and where there are Birkenstocks and, and you know, it's you know, those, those people who exist. I happen to be one of them, by the way, because I drive a Tesla Model 3. But you know, they're, they're everywhere, and the adoption rate has not been slower in Texas than it has been elsewhere. But we think that with the Tesla facility coming into the state and employing thousands of people in and around the Austin area, and the fact that the cyber truck is going to be built here as well, and Texas is the king of trucks, as you may know, we, th we think that we're going to see a significant penetration of people buying electric trucks, electric cars in Texas, because they're going to be building the right cars here in the state. Uh, and the other OEMs will be, be doing more and more, and eventually we'll, we'll also have vehicles that will be desirable by people in Texas. And the oil and gas industry will, will maintain a significant portion of, of uh, the fleets in our state, as far as we can tell into the future. But we think that people in Texas already use more wind power than any other state. We, we generate almost 30,000 megawatts of wind power here. We, we see the amount of solar energy in the Texas economy going to be leapfrogging other states uh, here very shortly. The last number I saw, I think was something like 18,000 megawatts is in the queue at ERCOT for construction over the next couple of years. We may be the, the king of oil and gas today, but we're already the king of wind. And we're very close very soon afterwards going to be the king of, of solar as well. So our, our energy economy is, is broadening beyond just oil and gas. And the people who are be working in those industries will be wanting to be, drive those vehicles. And people who want to drive a vehicle that they can power using green energy, because of the fact we're gonna have so much of it, will be able to do so. That's great, I appreciate that response. David, you have the final word here. As you talk to our audience of movers and shakers in the utility industry, what piece of advice, word of caution, or note of optimism would you like to leave them with as it relates to everything we've discussed today? The, the main thing is customers have to, to get started early if you're gonna be able to have the capacity for them to charge vehicles in place the day their trucks arrive, which is our promise. Uh, we've built tools to try to make sure that we know how to be able to answer their questions early on, identify how we have to invest to, to do this. But the, the biggest issue you're going to have is getting out to your customers who are customers who are always there, but in the past have not been key customers for you because they haven't had big loads, but are now all of a sudden going to put in big loads. And in many cases, the people who are responsible for those loads don't really understand your processes. 
they don't they don't deal a lot with uh, with you your utility in terms of how they operate. As an example, in a lot of the warehouses in our service territory, the loads are 125 to 150 kilowatts, and all of a sudden they're going to put in a, a fleet of, of vehicles that may take 10 megawatts. Uh, in one case, we had a, a company that came in and, and talked about 435 Class 8 trucks at a, a logistics depot. That was going to require 40 megawatts. And we we're going to have to have a dedicated service you know, substation just for that one customer at that one site, one building. Somebody built a building right next to them the same size and had the same number of trucks. We're going to have to put two new substations in place. So the main thing that I think that utilities need to do is to start looking at their service territory, start looking at where these truck fleets exist, and start planning out and building the tools that you need so that you can answer your customers' questions and figure out how you're going to reach out to them so that you can make contact and explain to them your processes and how long it's going to take for you to be able to respond to them because they don't understand your, your side of the business. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. David, I want to thank you for sharing your insight with us on today's episode of the podcast. We'll have to stay tuned to see how the utilities face given the wave of transportation electrification. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. You can always reach David through the Energy Central platform or directly with Encore Electric Delivery where he welcomes your questions and comments. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. See you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast.